Let's begin this morning with a quotation. Love God. I don't love God. I hate God. Said by a super ultra famous Christian. Love God, he said. Love God? I don't love God. I hate God. A terrible quote, but super important. A vital quotation, a strategic quotation. That's what Martin Luther said. Not Martin Luther King Jr., boys and girls. Martin Luther, a famous Christian who about 500 years ago, God used strategically to start something that would mean the recovery of the gospel. And that emotional declaration from Luther is an awesome declaration in this sense, even though it's blasphemous. It's awesome in the sense that finally, young Martin, the monk, the Catholic priest, was beginning to come to grips with just who God is and how he needed help, not from within, but how he needed help from without, how he needed Christ to be his only sole savior. It's strategic for him getting the gospel, if you will, because he's feeling guilt. He's reading the Bible more and more in original languages, studying the Bible in context. Not being told what the Bible says, but actually studying the Bible and reading the Bible. And he's seeing again and again and again that God is righteous. And he's struggling with his guilt. And when he would go to his mentors and confess his sins and what what do I do about my guilt? His mentors would keep telling him this. It'll be okay, Martin. Just love God more. It'll be fine. Just love God. Try harder. Just love God. Just love God. Just love God. And as he's seeing God as a righteous God in the Bible over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this love God more advice led him to say, love God? I don't love God. I hate God. And he's on to something. He's on to seeing how the gospel really works. See, he saw that God's standard is perfect, and because he, Martin, is related to Adam, because of the fall, because of sin, he could never, ever, ever, ever meet the standard. He could never love God the way he needs to love God. So, I mentioned this to you this morning, because I've just come from two conferences on the Reformation, and I just can't help myself. So, this last week, the OBC elders uh, and staff, we were at the Ligonier National Conference on the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the week before that, Pastor Chris Peterson, Peterson and I were at the Shepherds Conference celebrating. Every conference this year, by the way, is on the Reformation because it's the 500, 500-year anniversary. And in so many ways, while the Protestant Reformation is about multiple things, the standout is it's about recovering The gospel, the good news about Jesus bringing forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration because it had been lost. And in so many ways, it's because 
men and women like you and like me, and then religious leaders telling them this, came up with a new standard, a new kind of righteousness, instead of what's actually true about God and His righteousness. So today, we're going to be in Romans 10. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and go there. Romans 10, and we're going to learn about righteousness. One way to for sure, to, to for sure not be a Christian, one way to stay in your sins, one day to be frustrated with guilt up to your eyeballs, is to not understand righteousness. If you don't understand righteousness, it's inevitable, you're going to feel terrible, you're going to feel guilt, and it's inevitable, you're not going to understand what the gospel is. You're not going to understand who God is, you're not going to understand who you are, you're not going to understand what Christ did and who Christ is. So this stuff is super basic, but it's so, so critical. Let me confess to you that for years and years of my Christian life, I think I was a Christian, very confused, I didn't even know what righteousness was. What I, I could tell you what it was in Greek and Hebrew, and I still didn't really know what it was. I'm sure that some of you don't know what it is. And I'm not saying that to be insulting. I'm saying that because I feel the pastoral passion and burden to have you know what righteousness is. We got to know what righteousness is. We have to at least begin by saying, I can give you a definition of righteousness. And we're at least getting some traction. And if you can know what it is, and then you can help other people know what it is, there's traction. It may lead, how about this? At first, to people saying, love God? I don't love God. I hate God. But that's probably a sign that they're onto something. Something's happening. At least they're understanding who God is. So they can understand who they are. So they can understand who Jesus is and what he did. And so I'm so excited that we get to talk about this today. If, if you airdropped me anywhere on the planet and said, you need to preach, you have an opportunity to talk to people. You have an opportunity to lead a Bible study. You have an opportunity to address the crowd. You have an opportunity. I do Romans 10. Because I know people don't know what righteousness is. And in Romans 10, Paul is convinced that the key, the key failure to the Jews not understanding Jesus is because they don't understand righteousness. So I hope you're motivated just a little bit. I mean, this is going to be an opportunity for you, hopefully, to grow, to maybe to become a Christian if you're not one, to understand who God is better, to be equipped so that you can do a better job as an ambassador. It, it is, it is mind-rocking, heart-stirring, and to be able to leave today with assurance and confidence and joy. So excited, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I actually do. In Romans 10, we're going to learn about righteousness, but let me give you a definition. I hear people talk about righteousness all the time because it's in the text hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and they don't define it. I think it's because they might not know what it means. So I'll start with the definition so you don't say, he talked about righteousness again and again and again, and he never told us what it was. Plus, I told my boys, you'd better know what righteousness is. So, textbook definition from the most standard Original language definition I know of. Okay? Righteousness. And I quote, Conforming to the laws of God and people. Conforming to the laws of God and people. 
So it's inescapably a law word, a legal word. It's always in context to legality. God is a judge in the Bible. He's other things too, but he is a judge. Okay, so he's, the Bible says, a righteous judge. See, he has a law and he doesn't compromise his law. Some of you are familiar with justification when God declares us what? He declares us righteous. That's what justification means. And we know, that the word sounds familiar, justification. Oh, justice. Oh, it's a law word. It's a forensic term. And if God is declaring us righteous, He's declaring us to be keepers of His law, obeyers of His law, those who meet the requirement. Okay? So they come from the same concept, the same idea. Uh, let me say uh, that righteous is not synonymous with holy. Lots of Christians think that. I thought that for many, many, many years of my Christian life. God is holy. It means He's different. Okay, There's a difference between creature and creator. He's holy. He's not like all the idols. He's different. Uh, we're holy in that we're different from the rest of creation. We're separate, different, distinct. Um, even in the temple, in the Old Testament, uh, in the tabernacle, you even have holy utensils used for different things that happen in religious services because they're distinct. They're not ordinary knives. They're holy knives. They're for a religious purpose. Okay, That's what holy means. God is holy. But God is also righteous. Okay, He has a law and He upholds his law and he requires that everyone obey his law. See, it's different. It's a legal word, not a religious ceremony word or just a distinction kind of word. Maybe I'm emphasizing this a lot because I know people, if I tell them uh, righteous is a law word and it's always related to the law, they'll say, I don't think so. You might even be one of those kinds of people. But if you are one of those kinds of people, you're a kind of person that says, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. Without, I base my salvation on it. Without any question. In context, based upon the use of scripture, based upon common agreement of languages and the way they're used, righteous has to do with law. God's or human's. See, if you can get that, and now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible, the word righteous or righteousness is used, it's not a riddle book. You're onto something. You're, you've got some traction to understand, and you've got traction to understand Christ. By the way, who's called the righteous? Hmm, wonder what that means. Don't have to wonder very long. This is exciting unlocking the mysteries of the Bible that don't need to be mysteries. Let's go ahead and jump into Romans 10. I said we were going to do that, right? Okay, verse 1. Brothers, Paul says, My heart's desire, my longing and prayer to God for them, that would be his fellow Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, because he's one of them, he understands this, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Just a couple quick observations. Number one, they're not saved. Okay? 
And in Romans, it would be saved from God and His justice, from His just condemnation. Oh, another law word, by the way. They're not saved. They're not saved from their sin. They're not saved from the consequence of their sin. He's saying these Jews are not saved. Also, observation number two, they're emotional. They're even excited about things related to God. Isn't it interesting? They're passionate. They've got a zeal for God. And Paul says they're not saved. That there's a learning opportunity right away. That you can have that and actually not be saved from condemnation. Which could be a whole sermon series, right? But now, he's going to explain why. How could this be? How could people be passionate about God, have a zeal for God, and yet they're not saved? I'm not reading anything into that. They're not saved. He wants them to be saved. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. What do they need to know? What don't they know? What do they know wrongly? How about verse 3? For, here he goes explaining being ignorant of, ah, this is the knowledge they lack, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. That's, That's what happens too, by the way. That's the logical result. They're ignorant about God as it relates to His law, His requirements, His standards, what He requires of people. They're ignorant about God's righteousness. And so that leads to something. When you don't understand God's righteousness, it leads to, notice after the comma, and seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. There's all kinds of things going on. And by the way, the reason I'm excited about this is not because these people aren't saved, not because they're ignorant. Those are things to be burdened over. I'm excited because he's explaining how this problem can be dealt with. It's not by giving them more emotional kinds of arguments. No, no, they, they, they need to understand who God is. Because they are ignorant about who God really is as it relates to His standard, as it relates to His law. And what they end up then doing is they establish their own. That's what we do. You don't have to be Jewish to do this. We say things like, because we're ignorant of God's righteousness, we say things like in our culture today, God helps what? Those who help themselves. That's a, that's a perfect example of being ignorant of God's righteousness. It's a perfect example. God helps those who help themselves. Or anything else. You know, people are generally good. And I would never think that God would ever, you know, judge anybody. And all this kind of stuff. It's, they're, they're totally, sometimes we are, totally ignorant of God's righteousness. And so it's no wonder we don't look to The righteousness He provides, which is what He means, we'll see, uh, by God's righteousness. They don't submit to God's righteousness. They don't believe the gospel. They don't trust in Christ because they're ignorant about God's righteousness. Think about it this way. It's not a perfect illustration, but if there's a fence that is unscalable, There's no possible way you can get over the fence. You're going to have to look somewhere outside of yourself to deal with that problem. 
And it's kind of like that with us. Oh, by the way, it's not God's fault. We're all related to Adam. And so we have a sin nature. And so here we are. It's like we have no arms and no legs spiritually. We couldn't climb that fence. We never could. But the standard has always been the same. Before the fall, it was the same. Love me. Keep my commandments. Love each other. And after the fall, after sin and rebellion, the standard's been the same. But we're incapable. But what we do, if we don't understand that wall, that fence is perfect, by the way, but unscalable by us because we're all related to Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, what we do is, because we have a sense of law, we have a sense of justice, we have a sense of right and wrong, and we know that there are problems, so we just make a new one. And so maybe with some good effort and some help from God, we can do it. And the Jews are thinking like this. And that causes the Jews and it causes people like you and people like me to reject Christ. Because you don't need righteousness provided for you because you can be righteous yourself. Okay, is it making sense? It's not, it's not complicated. Sorry my illustrations are, are lacking. God has a perfect standard. We could never meet the standard. So we should therefore look outside of ourselves to God's provision of meeting the standard. But the reason we don't look for God's provision is because we're not desperate, because we make up our own righteousness. We make up our own laws. The Jews did it. We do it. I'm going to have my good outweigh my bad. That's not the standard. I'm better than my next door neighbor. That's not the standard. The standard is God's righteousness. God's saying, love me perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. We're going to get to that. I know that that's the standard though. And what we want to do is come to grips like Martin Luther did and say, just love God more. I can never meet the requirement. It leads to that terrible feeling, that terrible guilt, that terrible emotion that might even cause you to be like him and say, love God, I don't love God, I hate God. Because I can't. It's right where we want you. I can't. So you've got to look to someone who can. I love it. The Bible says the just. Oh, that's right. That means righteous. For the unjust. That means unrighteous. The law keeper. Because that's what righteous means. For the law breaker. Substitution. It's so awesome. And if you think this is old hat, this is so basic, I already know this stuff, would you please entertain me with something else? My answer is no! Because even if you understand this, you know loads of people that don't. I know it's so basic. But it's the most profound thing ever, 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 ever. It's what the world needs. It's, it's the key to you worshiping Christ appropriately. It's the, key, it's the key to you leaving with joy and confidence. Sometimes we think if we say the standard is God's law and it's perfect, that's going to lead to legalism. No, it doesn't. It's actually, actually a cure to legalism. 
you understand? I could never, ever do what God requires. It's, it's impossible. That's not going to lead to legalism. That's going to lead to you being defeated, desperate, looking outside of yourself for someone else to do it for you. It leads actually to you seeing your need for Christ, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And then there's joy and rejoicing, not more, hey, well, we need to move on. hate saying that. Verse 4, okay, here we go. For Christ, I guess we have to, right, at the end of 3, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God's righteous provision is what he means in the flow and the context. They, they, didn't, they didn't turn to Christ. And here I know that's what he means because in verse 4, for Christ is the end or completion or fulfillment is the idea, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Oh, wow! How about that again? For, for Christ, see, they didn't turn to Christ, but they need to turn to Christ. For Christ, here's the explanation, is the end, the completion, the fulfillment of the law. The law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, who everyone, for everyone who trusts in Him. God doesn't throw the law away. That would make Him unjust, by the way. It would make Him unlaw, is the idea. It would make Him less than God. It would make Him bad. No. What happens is, in Christ we have the end of the law for righteousness. The fulfillment of the law. The completion of the law is the idea for righteousness for everyone who believes. See, the standard didn't change. You, that's just, this is why I like to tell people, and I say it all the time. I, I know some of you almost left the church because I say this. To go to heaven, you have to be perfect. Conclusion, no one's going to heaven. That's like temporary conclusion, Right? So you have to have perfection that comes from outside of you. God, God doesn't get rid of the law. But He provides fulfillment of it through His Son who became one of us. Changes everything. And how does this benefit us? To everyone who believes. Righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone who rests in Christ looks to Him, not themselves. It means righteousness to you. Salvation is by works. Not yours. Because you're related to Adam. And you actually could never, ever be righteous. You could never keep the law because... You're broken to begin with, and so am I. But we need Christ's righteousness. Christ's obedience to the law is what that means without any question. And this is, this is the key to the gospel. You don't have the gospel without this. But see, remember back in verse 3, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteous provision. They didn't submit to Christ. They didn't come God's way. I think this is what's spoken of in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, the idea is they knew something about God, they did not honor Him as God or give 
thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. The New American Standard translates it, futile speculations. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, I think God helps those who help themselves. I think God is going to base his judgment on a curve. I think, I think, I think, I think. These are futile speculations. What I want to say is they were ignorant. What we want to know is what's true. What's true? Okay. Maybe a little bit of a just to maybe help you out a little bit. These, these are not new concepts in Romans. I just like Romans 10 because it so aptly describes kind of how, how we think. We don't know what righteousness is. But it's been flowing throughout Romans. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. You all know what that means. None is an adherer to God's law. No, not one. Oh, that's why we need Christ's righteousness. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass, trespass. What happens when you trespass on someone's private property? You're breaking the... Yeah. Just as one trespass, he's talking about Adam's violation, led to condemnation. What kind of word is condemnation? It's a legal word. That's a law word. Led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, adherence to divine law, talking about Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. Context is all who believe. Huh, okay. None are righteous. Because we're all related to great, 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 great. You get the idea. Grandpa Adam. But if we trust in Christ, we're related to Jesus, who, it says, leads to justification because of his one act of righteousness. That, that by the way, one act of righteousness is either, either summarizing his entire work and everything he did as one act, or as your ESV margin says, another way to translate it, the act of righteousness of one. It could go either way. Both are true. So, just for a breather, God requires perfection. Jesus is the provision from God. It's why you have to believe in Him. And if you believe in Him, God sees you as if you're perfect. I know He does because the Bible says He declares you perfect. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. Romans 5, Romans 8. Oh, it's awesome. How about that? How about being like young Luther and coming face to face with the daunting reality that God requires absolute perfection and you ain't got none. I mean, some, sometimes I'm tempted to preach a sermon and do only that. 
I, I won't, but I would like to do that. Just divine standard, divine standard, divine standard. This is what God requires, absolute, in thought, word, and deed, as older, mature Christians have said. In thought, word, and deed, everything, every thought, every motive, every action, everything, if you don't do all of them perfectly your whole life, you deserve to and you are going to hell. Have a nice day. Some ways I want to do that and just let it sit and say, this, this is not good news. And by the way, I could, I would be saying the exact same thing if I just said, you need to love God, 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 you need to love God. Oh, by the way, you need to love your neighbor, you need to love your neighbor, you need to love your neighbor. In thought, word, and deed, you need to do that perfectly. I would be saying the same thing. But we don't equate the two together very well. And what would we do? We would leave and we, we, we would be on 24-hour watch in rooms with no sharp objects. We should be. See, that's what should happen if we're starting to come to grips with God's righteousness. There is a law and it means perfection and we don't meet it. This is terrible. By the way, it's not God's fault. That's where Luther got mixed up. But we would be in that... In that proneness to say, what's, what's with this God anyway? Until we learn more about what it means to be in Adam and all that. But see, that's where we, that's where we need to be. We're busy selling Jesus as a life coach who helps people. It's true he helps people, but the greatest help and the ultimate help, the gospel help is, it's Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ, the law obeyer, in my place. Because apart from that, I am, to use Paul's logic, not saved. And now it's good news, right? And I know this is trite, but we, we, we really mean it when we say, you won't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news. And the bad news is the good God who has a good law that is absolutely reasonable means you're in a whole lot of trouble. And so am I. But thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, provision is made. I'm going to fill my house with sharp objects. No padding on any of the walls. Because I'm free in Christ because of what He's done. It's good news. It's the best news of all. We, we, we're familiar with that Luther quotation. It's probably not an exact quotation into English, but it still captures the idea. The doctrine, the teaching, the reality of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the doctrine, is the teaching upon which the church stands or falls. Okay? Because we don't have a gospel apart from that. So, but what we're seeing is something comes before justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul's developing it in Romans chapter 10. You don't need justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, unless you're staring at this cosmic problem called God's divine standard, His righteousness. 
So you look to Christ for righteousness so that God can declare you righteous. Justification. This is so exciting. This is always relevant. But it is something we need to move on and keep talking about. Paul shows this is not a new reality. I think we could be done now and just and wrap up there and, and we have the idea. But he shows this is not a new thing. So in verse 5, for he, he wants to answer the critic who says this is made up. He says, for Moses. See, the Jews, they like Moses. For Moses writes, and he's going to reference Leviticus. They like Leviticus too. You should like Leviticus. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who, notice, does the commandments shall live by them. We might think that that's wrong, but it's actually not wrong. It's actually right. It's, it's exactly what Jesus will say in Luke chapter 10. If you do the commandments, you'll live. And based upon the way Jesus uses the same Leviticus text, he means eternal life. If you do the commandments, you'll have eternal life. Is that possible? Not if you're in Adam. But God's law has never changed. The standard has always been the same. The principle is an eternal principle. If you do the commandments, you'll live by them. There's not a lot of time to do it, but we, we have to do it. We have to go to Luke chapter 10. I realize we reference this a lot at Omaha Bible Church, but I do want you to see it. You know, we're taught early on um, to interpret the Bible in context. And there are different contexts, and we're taught to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And all of those things are relevant and important. And this is a great, great, great example. Okay, so we've got Paul using Leviticus 18-ish, top of my head. So we've got Paul using it, and now we're going to have Jesus using it. And we're going to know, based upon the context of Luke 10, what is meant by the life. You do the commandments, and you'll live by them. We might be prone to saying, well, that just means we should arrange our life following commandments. It's not how Jesus takes it. It's not how Paul takes it. Do the commandments, gain eternal life. How long is the line of people that do the commandments and gain eternal life? When you go to Costco today, how many people are going to be in that line? How many? I love it when people say none, and then others, you get the award, Dory, for sure, say one. There's one. You can't. No one does. Oh, but actually one does. And we're going to submit to the righteousness of God in Him. Okay. Luke 10, chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying... This is a a lawyer, uh, a legal expert, testing Jesus, um, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So I highlighted eternal life so I knew that he wasn't talking about temporal life. He wasn't talking about life-guiding principles. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And notice Jesus doesn't say, you're such a legalist, you have no idea what you're talking about. 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Interpret live in verse 28 by life in 25. Live in 28 is the same life as 25. It's what kind of life? Ta-da! It's eternal life. Could that lawyer have done it? No, he couldn't have done it because he's in, he's in Adam. He's already a sinner. He's already corrupted. But the principle is still true. It's always true. If you do the right thing perfectly, absolutely, then in principle, you'll gain eternal life. That's how it used to be before the fall. It's how it is after the fall. It never changes because God is righteous. He doesn't change it. He doesn't change the principle, the law principle. So when we go back to our text and we go to Romans 10.5 Moses who teaches whoever does the commandments shall live by them Paul's answering the objection the Jews are going to quote Moses and Moses isn't with you guys who lower God's righteousness Moses is actually with me and I have it on good authority Jesus' authority that do this and live is the principle You'd better be righteous or you're smoked. See, that puts us in the spot where we go, spiritual uncle, I can't do it. I need God's provision. I need to submit to God's righteousness in Christ. How about verse, verse 6? But the righteousness based on faith, faith in the context is faith in Christ says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? The, the idea there is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to achieve heaven. Okay? That is to bring Christ down. We don't bring Christ down. He came down only because of grace, nothing in us. Or who will descend into the abyss? Again, I'm going to do it. I'm going to conquer death by my works and by my efforts and by my actions because I can because I have a new standard of righteousness. And he says, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. That could be super confusing, but it doesn't have to be. It's this mentality that says somehow, yeah, maybe Christ is involved. God is involved, but I've got to do my part. And that just shows you don't understand the standard. And the standard would be you could never do it. That's why Christ had to come down with no coaxing, with no, no work of ours, deserving. And, and Christ was raised by His power, the power of the Spirit, according to the triune plan of God. It's not because we went down there and got Him because we're good and we work hard. No. No, that's not it. That's not what we're talking about here, He says. We don't cooperate with grace and then God rewards us with righteousness. It's got to come entirely from God. How about verse 8? This is so awesome. But what does it say? The word is near you. See, we're not going up and we're not going down. We're not efforting. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. Context, faith in Christ. Again, this can be confusing too and we're going to read it and when we read it, it doesn't have to be confusing because the idea is it's, it's the word, it's the revelation in context. It's the, he's going to say it's the word that was preached. Oh, context of Romans. The gospel is preached and the gospel is not something in you. 
The gospel isn't something you do. The gospel is the good news about the historic work of Jesus that's already been done. Okay, So you're not trying hard to get up there. You're not trying hard to overcome sin and the grave and the consequences. No, you're not, you're not doing anything. It's near. In fact, it's so near you believe in your heart. But that's not doing anything. That's right. That's not lifting a finger. That's right. You believe in, in your heart and you confess with your mouth. That's what, he's, that's what he's getting. That's awesome. But what does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, faith in Christ, that we proclaim. See, the gospel is what you proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, see, we weren't involved in overcoming the grave, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified. See, it's no action. No efforting. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I think he's saying parallel things there, two things stating the same thing. It's awesome. You know, you're in a straitjacket. There's no spiritual efforting. And by the way, you'd just be trying to meet your own righteous requirements anyway. There's no way you can meet the requirement because it's perfection. Christ meets the requirement. So what do you have to do? I can't do anything. That's right. You believe in Jesus. You're resting in somebody else. You're incapable, unable, and you're not supposed to do anything because then you just mess it up because that proves you don't understand what Jesus did. It proves you don't understand who Jesus is. You believe in Jesus. You rest in Him. A couple of good texts by way of cross-reference would uh, complement Romans. Matthew 5, 17, uh, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I didn't come to lower the standard. I didn't come to get rid of Leviticus 18, the do this and live principle. I came to fulfill the standard. I did it. We already know what the standard is. Love God with all of your faculties, we might say, to summarize, including motives, and love your neighbor perfectly. Jesus says that's a summary of the law, and Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of that, but I came to fulfill it. I came to bring culmination. I came to bring an end to it in the right sense. Matthew 3.15, he said, I want to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness. Does it mean holiness? No. You're not helping people. You're just adding another religious word that's a great word and an important word. But you're just confusing people. Righteousness. Is this some kind of gas? Some kind of substance? No. It's concrete. It's personal. Because God is personal and He personally requires you to keep His what? Law. Law. He requires it. And God personally sends His Son, here we go, don't miss this, His Son to earth to become one of us. The humanity of Jesus is critical because He was born under the law to fulfill the law so that we could be justified. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. 
never going to happen. We should be loving the humanity of Jesus. Yeah, he became one of us to do all this for us. Here's the deal. It's not a deal. It's so good. It's so good to realize that God's good and holy law is that and that it means bad news for us. It's so good. Because apart from that, there's no salvation. It's Romans 10. We're just going to come up with our new laws, new laws, new laws, new laws, new laws, new laws. Because then we know God's good and holy law means we're condemned and we need to know that so that then by God's grace we can look outside of ourselves and to use Paul's terminology, submit to God's righteousness. I believe in Jesus, your one and only unique son. He went to the cross. He went to the cross for us because we're unrighteous. Okay? There's a, there's a just condemnation, execution, and it wasn't just physical. Death. By the way, that's fulfilling the law as well. I think that's why Paul talks about one act of righteousness. It's the whole thing. How about Philippians? Even death on a cross. I like it that we sing no guilt in life, no fear in death. If you're believing in Jesus today, you should be humming that all day long. No guilt in life, even though you're guilty. Because you're looking to Christ. No fear in death, because Jesus was perfect. God raised him from the dead. It's proof he's going to raise you from the dead. Isn't this great stuff? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to look outside of ourselves, to look to Christ. Uh, what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank you that we don't have to fear because of your love for us. Thank you that now we actually can seek to obey you and honor you and love you out of gratitude because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, may your word powerfully work in our hearts. If need be, if we have hard hearts, may your word shatter our hearts like Jeremiah talked about. Give us new hearts. Allow us to look outside of ourselves to Christ. Encourage us. Help us to be good ambassadors, to understand our Bibles like we've never understood them before if necessary. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.